You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Got some extra time on your hands? Need a distraction? Check out this great podcast. We're the Vocal Fries. I'm Carrie. And I'm Megan. And we have a podcast about linguistic discrimination. We talk about language, not being a jerk, not judging people for the way that they speak, and we try to have a good time. We talk about things like vocal fry, swearing, Southern American English, and prescriptive grammar. You can find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. In 2011, an Alabama law firm sued fast food chain Taco Bell for dishonest business practices, claiming that Taco Bell's seasoned beef filling couldn't be called beef under USDA standards because they had it tested and it was only 35% beef. The rest was oats and other fillers. Taco Bell pulled out all the stops to refute the allegation at a cost of more than $3 million, including a parody of a Saturday morning superhero cartoon show that they had already, for reasons, super delicious ingredient force fighting Baron Von Bland. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Researching conspiracy theories and urban legends always gets a little wild. Like, did you know that people are diehard Tim Hortons fans because the Canadian version of Dunkin' Donuts spikes their coffee with highly addictive nicotine? Of course they don't, but that doesn't stop people from believing it. We'll be skipping over stories like the fingertip in Wendy's Chili, that was a failed extortion attempt, or the mouse in the Mountain Dew, which PepsiCo defended themselves against by proving that the mouse would have dissolved. Let's start with the biggest name in fast food, the Mac Daddy, if you will. McDonald's easily holds the records for the most urban legends and conspiracy yarns spun around a restaurant. The topic has its own Wikipedia page, and these well predate the unduplicatable experiment that was Morgan Spurlock's Supersize Me. Listeners of a certain demographic may remember the jingle, You Deserve a Break Today. reaching them about the same time as the rumor that McDonald's stretched their hamburger meat out with nice, cheap, ground-up worms. If you've been online for more than a few minutes in the past decade, you will have seen a picture of a factory machine extruding a fat tube of pink mush, or pink slime as the caption frames it. Say hello to mechanically separated chicken. It's what all fast food chicken is made from, things like chicken nuggets and patties. Also, the processed frozen chicken in the stores is made from it. Basically, the entire chicken is smashed and pressed through a sieve. Bones, eyes, guts, and all. It comes out looking like this. And there's more. Because it's crawling with bacteria, it'll be washed in ammonia. Soaked in it, actually. Then, because it tastes gross, it'll be re-flavored artificially. Then, because it's weirdly pink, it'll be dyed with artificial color. But hey, at least it tastes good, right? There are little bits there that are nearly true. Mechanically separated meat is a staple ingredient in ready-made frozen and fast foods, but it's made from meat cuts, not whole carcasses. While beef producers commonly treat meat products with small amounts of ammonium hydroxide as an antimicrobial agent, a necessity in a high-volume facility, meat and poultry processors don't soak the meat in ammonia. They treat it with the gas. 
Apart from the included items being wrong, there are a lot of things that are missing, like the fact that McDonald's stopped using mechanically separated chicken in 2003. Mechanically separated beef was banned in 2004 due to concerns about bovine spongiform encephalopathy, aka mad cow disease. And the pink slime in the picture is probably what one beef industry magazine writer called ammonium-treated lean beef trimmings. Not even chicken at all. Another glaring omission in the claim, there is nothing in the picture to identify that as a McDonald's facility. McDonald's went on the defensive, showing how nuggets were actually made, and that the mushed-up chicken, while not especially pleasing to the eye, at no point looks like pink slime. Wanna wash down those nuggets with a milkshake? Well, there's no milk in that milkshake, there's no dairy of any kind. That's why the menu says shakes and not milkshakes. At least, that's the rumor. What do they use instead to make it so creamy? Pureed cow eyeballs. Or maybe little microscopic styrofoam balls for filler. Or lard. Or potatoes. Or seaweed. Or ground-up feathers. There are strict definitions in food labeling, and while McDonald's shakes can't be labeled milkshakes in some areas because they don't contain straight-up milk, they do contain milk via the soft-serve ice cream that's used to make them. And they don't contain any of the other things, save one. Their ice cream is made from milk, sugar, cream, corn syrup, and various common preservatives and thickeners. McDonald's self-serve does contain one item from the urban legend list, seaweed, specifically carrageenan, a safe, natural, common ingredient. Bonus fact, if your food or drink is pink or red in color, check the label for cochineal, a type of beetle whose ground-up bodies have been used as a food color for centuries. I'm not suggesting to avoid it unless you're trying to keep kosher, I just think it's interesting. It's probably only listed as natural color anyway. Say you bought more food than you're able to eat in one sitting, and you left the rest on the counter for a few weeks. Hey, we all get busy. Thanks to all the artificial ingredients and man-made chemicals, in bald-faced defiance of the natural order of things, that McDonald's food won't rot. Lots of people have made videos showing the food remaining virtually unchanged after days and even weeks. This is a little bit true, but mostly false, in case I need to specify that and not for the reasons you think. According to Dr. Keith Warner, Program Director at the University of Gulf's Department of Food Science and Quality Assurance, essentially the microbes that cause rotting are a lot like ourselves in that they need water, nutrients, warmth, and time to grow. If we take one or more of those elements away, then microbes cannot grow and spoil food. In the example of the McDonald's hamburger, the patty loses water in the form of steam during cooking. The bun is made out of bread, and toasting it reduces the amount of moisture. This means that after preparation, the hamburger is fairly dry. When left out open in a room, there's further water loss as the humidity within most buildings is around 40%. So in the absence of moisture or high humidity, the burger simply dries out rather than rots. So no moisture, no rot. It's the inverse of the reason why the bathroom is the only room in your house where you're locked in an eternal struggle with microbes like mold and mildew. Speaking of moisture, who could use a tasty beverage right about now? How about a new Coke? Don't know what I'm talking about? That means one of two things. You're under the age of 30, 
or the most devious and ingenious marketing effort of all time succeeded or failed. Either way, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence set would want you to know that Coke created new Coke to cover the switch from sugar to corn syrup to mask the removal of the last remaining coca derivatives or because people would hate it and demand more of what had been renamed Coke Classic. Take your pick. Pepsi had an effective ad campaign with the Pepsi Challenge, a blind taste test where lifelong Coke fans found out they actually preferred the taste of Pepsi. Coke replicated the challenge in private and found the same thing. So in 1985, they reformulated Coke to be sweeter and put it out as New Coke. Hip, trendy, with it, and now including TV spots with the supposedly CGI Max Hedrum, who you can hear more about in episode 96, Do Not Adjust Your Set. People hated New Coke. They hated the very idea of Coke being changed. There were letter-writing campaigns, thousands of calls a day, and people hoarding original Coke or boycotting the brand altogether. Independent bottlers even sued Coca-Cola for lost revenue. It was all over the news and all the late-night talk shows. You couldn't buy that much publicity. Or could you? People began to speculate that Coca-Cola had launched New Coke knowing that people would hate it, that it would make people want to buy original Coke, and that everyone would be talking about it. They created it to fail. This isn't as far-fetched a notion as you might think. A decade or so later, when Pepsi launched Crystal Pepsi, Can you hear that Van Hagar song? Coke launched Crystal Tab. Tab was the first diet soda, and even though Crystal Pepsi wasn't diet, people conflated the two, and Crystal Pepsi went out faster than Jenko's and plastic choker necklaces. As for the new Coke debacle being a deliberate marketing ploy, then-company president Donald Coke said, Some cynics will say that we planned the whole thing. The truth is, we're not that dumb. And we're not that smart. Coca-Cola tried rebranding New Coke as Coke 2, still an answer to a question no one asked, and amazingly kept marketing it until 2002. I've never really understood staunch brand loyalty to cola, but maybe that's because I drink diet and it all tastes terrible. Let's get an energy drink instead. How about Monster Brand Caffeine Quaff? What evil could be lurking there? Be. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Satan! This theory hinges on the logo. Three vertical slashes in roughly the shape of an M. Don't be fooled into thinking it's just supposed to look like claws of a monster slashing through from the inside. Those claw marks form the shape of the Hebrew letter Vav, which stands for six. And there are three of them, so that's 666. There's also the slogan, Unleash the Beast. And when you tip the can up to drink it, the cross in Monster's O goes upside down. I need an old priest and a young priest. No, not really. If you want to spell out 666 in Hebrew, it's not literally vav vav vav. In Hebrew, it's written 666, which are represented by the letters samach resh tav vav. Monster is only a harbinger of evil if you think heartburn and shaking hands are the devil's work. Maybe we'll just stick to water. Good, pure, natural water. Oh, you know somebody has a conspiracy theory for that. And it is the gold standard, government mind control. The well runs deep on this water-based conspiracy, but it's not the water 
It's fluoride. Fluoride helps to strengthen tooth enamel, and healthy teeth are an underappreciated part of overall health. You need teeth to chew up wholesome, sustaining food. When the U.S. government began adding fluoride to a portion of the American water supply in the 1940s, it came with a deluge of conspiracies. Some skeptics believed fluoridation was a communist plot to infiltrate our precious bodily fluids and control our minds. The Cold War that was right around the corner did nothing to quell that belief. To this day, people still argue that fluoride is toxic, and the government is using it to purposely damage parts of our brains to make us less intelligent and more docile. They might be half right there. Others simply object because fluoridated water is essentially medication that you're being given unethically, whether you need it or want it. There's even debate as to its effectiveness, though nine out of ten dentists agree that it helps prevent cavities. And is there a master list of these outlier dentists so we can avoid them? Circling back to Hebrew, we have a markedly less fun conspiracy theory: the kosher tax or the Jewish tax. This isn't a tax on Jews, but a nefarious plot by the elders of Zion, because of course it is. Adherents to this idea, many of them anti-Semites and white nationalists, claim that the kosher designation on food means that a portion of the price goes to Zionist causes, the state of Israel, or straight into the pockets of rabbis. The one rabbi I know personally makes an admittedly small data set, but I don't think he's seeing any of the money from this. Common offshoot ideas include, because the consumers who prefer kosher foods include not only Jews but Muslims, Seventh Day Adventists, and even Mormons, food companies actively seek kosher certification to increase their market share. The fees collected support the certifying organizations themselves. Companies are extorted to get kosher certification or risk a boycott. University of Pittsburgh professor of sociology Kathleen Blee reported that some racist groups encourage consumers to avoid this Jewish tax by boycotting kosher products. This would mean boycotting a lot of things: everything from instant Folgers coffee to Kellogg's cereal, Jif peanut butter to Trader Joe's tea, even Glad sandwich bags. Dig around in your pantry. I'll wait. You're looking for a K, which means kosher. A U or a U in a circle, which means made under the supervision of the Union of Orthodox Rabbis, or parva, which is Yiddish for neutral, meaning it contains neither milk nor meat, as kosher guidelines or kashrut forbids mixing meat and dairy. And in case I needed to spell it out, there is no such thing as a kosher tax. One thing I do want to say specifically is welcome to the newest members of Patreon.com/slash/YourBrainOnFacts, where the latest episode of Patreon exclusive Spot the Lie dropped a few days ago. So welcome to Kaylee, Edward, Cupcake Queen, Scott, and Michael M. Today's topic was actually voted on by our patrons, narrowly edging out a subject I might do next week, since there's clearly interest. There was no Mystery Monday last week since the episode was a rerun. The winner two weeks ago, though, was Michelle Barks, the first person who correctly guesses the topic from the three clues each Monday on Facebook and Instagram.com/slash/yourbrainonfacts and Twitter at brainonfactspod gets some Your Brain on Facts stickers mailed to them. Sorry, patrons, you can't win on the weeks where you voted for the topic. 
over in the Brainiac Breakroom at facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Breakroom. Terrell shared a very timely video on the history of toilet paper, and Jennifer bestowed me with a most singular honor. She named her new car after me. I guess that makes it my god car, and I'm just pickled tink about the whole thing. And here's another great show that you might enjoy. Everyone, no matter how big a geek you are, has movies that they haven't seen that have other geeks saying, how have you never seen this movie? Well, we're here to help. At the Now You've Seen It podcast, we help you fill those gaps in your geek cred one movie at a time. Each episode, a guest who is watching the movie for the first time joins our rotating cast of hosts and panelists to discuss the movie and compare seeing it through fresh eyes versus seeing it with eyes filtered through the lens of nostalgia. You can find Now You've Seen It on Facebook at facebook.com slash now you've seen it, no apostrophe, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. How many legs does a chicken have? Two, unless it comes from a KFC farm, where they genetically engineer chickens to have four or more legs for maximum profit. You can even see a picture of one of their chickens in our show notes. Better living through chemistry. From a blog on the subject. Not as a source of information, but to give you a sense of what some people are bandying about. First of all, has anybody noticed that just recently the company changed their name? Kentucky Fried Chicken became KFC. Does anybody know why? We thought the reason was because of the fried food issue. It's not. The reason why they call it KFC is because they can't use the word chicken anymore. Why? KFC doesn't sell real chickens. They actually use genetically manipulated organisms. These so-called chickens are kept alive by tubes inserted into their bodies to pump blood and nutrients through the structure. They have no beaks, no feathers, and no feet. Their bone structure is dramatically shrunk to get more meat out of them. This is great for KFC, so they don't have to pay so much for production costs. No more plucking of feathers, removal of beaks and feet. The government told them to change all of their menus so they don't say chicken anymore. If you look closely, you'll notice this. Listen to their commercials. I guarantee you will not see or hear the word chicken. I find this matter to be very disturbing. I hope people will start to realize this and let other people know. Please forward this message to as many people as you can. They did everything except write, WAKE UP SHEEPLE in all caps. The company didn't let allegations like these stand, at least not in all markets. 
In 2013, a Shanghai court fined three tech firms about $100,000 for helping to spread the story and pictures of allegedly deformed frankenbirds with six wings and eight legs. Yum Brands, KFC's parent company, had been seeking about three times as much in damages, but says they were pleased with the outcome. There's one amazing tale involving KFC that sounds ridiculously ludicrously made up, but is actually true. Fried chicken smuggling via underground tunnels. The wait is long, the food is cold, and it costs more than two and a half times the usual price for a bucket. But for some people in Gaza, it's worth it. There are no name brand fast food franchises on the 140 square mile coastal strip that 1.7 or so million Palestinians call home. The entry and exit of goods and people remains restricted, but one enterprising man saw an opportunity to make money in this bizarre version of Uber Eats. Side note, this episode came out during the COVID-19 crisis, so I'm speaking to the people who are listening to it when it's fresh. If you order anything to be delivered to save yourself from going out and risking exposure, you tip that person like your everlasting soul depends on it. It takes more than four hours for the KFC meals to make the trip from the franchise in El Arish, Egypt, a journey that involves two taxis, an international border, and a smuggling tunnel, all coordinated from a small shop called Yamama. It is our right to enjoy the taste that other people all around the world enjoy, says the entrepreneur Khalil Enfrangi, who started Yamama a few years ago with a fleet of motorbikes ferrying food from Gaza restaurants, the first such delivery service in the area. Breaking the blockade is seen as part of resisting the Israeli enemy, which is as deep as I am going into Middle Eastern politics. Full stop. The hundreds of illegal smuggling tunnels in the region were used to move obvious things like weapons and people, and then luxury goods like high-end watches and iPhones, and then fast food. It gives people a sense of empowerment and control over their lives, even if that agency manifests as fried chicken. Name three things that symbolize the 1970s. Bell-bottoms, the gas crisis, and fondue parties. Half a dozen people sitting around a chafing dish spending two hours cooking a few pieces of meat and dipping cubes of bread into cheese was all the rage. Why? Even in the decade of the pet rock, why did fondue become so popular that newlyweds were basically guaranteed to get at least one fondue set, if not two? It was a conspiracy by the Swiss Cheese Union. No, seriously, this one's real. Never heard of the Swiss Cheese Union? That's not too surprising. After World War I, cheese consumption in Europe was at an all-time low. Cheesemakers in Switzerland banded together to set the price of milk and cheese, limit the types and amounts of cheese that could be made, and bring smaller operations to heel, or run them out of business, mafia-style. The Schweizer Kass Union was basically a curd cartel. The Swiss Cheese Union mandated that cheese production be limited to only three varieties, Emmentaler, Gruyere, and Sprinz. In the 50s and 60s, the Union wanted not only to boost supply of the country's cheese inventory, but also broadly increase demand for it. How do you convince people to spend their hard-earned money on a high-fat food? How do we get them to buy anything? Advertising. Marketing gobs of melted cheese as a healthy food from the Alps, the ads showed good-looking people having fun around a fondue pot. 
Fondue quickly became part of the Swiss identity before spreading across Europe and the world. But fads don't last, and by the 90s, fondue pots, inevitably missing at least one fork, only came out of the cabinet to be put on the yard sale table, and the cartel itself was collapsing. It took nearly a century, but the cheesemakers of Switzerland were again free to make whatever cheese they damn well pleased. Speaking of small groups of influencers, let me tell you about Big Sugar. Ugh, I feel like a conspiracy theorist even saying that. Too much of anything is unhealthy, we can all agree on that, but this conspiracy holds that sugar is actually much worse for us than we think, that the government knows this and has been covering it up for decades. Low fat. Low fat if you want to lose weight. You gotta eat low fat, right? In the early 20th century, doctors began to notice a rise in Americans with heart disease, a condition entirely ubiquitous today, but that wasn't even a statistically significant thing before the turn of the last century. The public really took notice in 1955 when President Dwight Eisenhower survived a heart attack, though considering his stressful job, famous temper, and four-pack-a-day smoking habit, it couldn't be blamed entirely on his diet. What followed was the research scientist version of dueling banjos. On one side, you had Ansel Keys, who declared that fat makes you fat and prone to heart disease. Though, from 1959 to now, he's been accused of cherry-picking his data, only finding reports that upheld his theory. That's called confirmation bias, by the way. On the other side was Australian scientist and professor of nutrition John Yudkin, who wrote in his book Pure, White, and Deadly, if only a small fraction of what we know about the effects of sugar were to be revealed in relation to any other material used as a food additive, that material would promptly be banned. He put the reticle on sugar, not fat, as the prime cause of obesity and associated ailments like diabetes and heart disease. Keyes wasn't the only scientist to come out in the fat-bad-sugar-good camp. In the 60s, the sugar industry, which had deep pockets even then, basically paid scientists to agree with Keyes' findings. Yudkin pointed out that the rise in heart disease correlated to the widespread availability of refined white sugar. We'd been eating animal and plant-based fats since the dawn of time, but we'd only had white sugar on every kitchen table since the Industrial Revolution. Keyes publicly ridiculed Yudkin's research. Yudkin tried to clue people in on the dangers of sugar right up until his retirement, but no one would listen. By that point, the public had accepted what they'd been metaphorically fed. In 1980, the FDA recommended a low-fat diet, thanks in no small part to sugar producers making sure there were scientists on crucial health panels that would tow their party line. Food manufacturers churned out low-fat versions of everything, and we've all gotten skinnier since 1980. If this were a TV news segment, this is where I'd roll all that footage of overweight people walking around, shot from the neck down. There's one problem with taking fat out of food. Fat carries flavor. Without it, you need something else to make the food taste good, and that something else is almost invariably sugar. Even with the rise of no-sugar, low-carb, no-carb diets, sugar producers continue to fund bad science to prove that fat is the enemy and it's A-OK -okay for them to keep dumping sugar into food by the truckload. At the risk of sounding like I've got a bee in my tinfoil bonnet, lobbyists really do affect our lives, 
They bring on change or lack of change. Another example is pennies. Pennies are worthless. Literally, they cost more to produce than their face value. New Zealand, Australia, the Netherlands, Finland, and Sweden don't even use them anymore. So why do we? One key reason is the zinc lobby. Bet you didn't even know that was a thing. Neither did I. But pennies are 97.5% zinc with a 2.5% coating of copper. That zinc comes exclusively from the Jardin Corporation, who spends a lot of money convincing politicians to block any effort to get rid of pennies. But back to the topic of food, which you can't get out of a vending machine if you have pennies. Sorry, sorry, it's just, it's really stupid once you start to look at it. Another big business conspiracy theory involves the 2016 string of E. coli outbreaks at Chipotle restaurants across the country. Stores closed for deep cleaning and staff retraining. As the bacteria levels and the public fervor died down, the conspiracy theories started rolling in. The basic premise was that Chipotle is a vocal opponent of GMOs, genetically modified organisms, and the GMO megacorporations like Monsanto, dubbed the Biotech Mafia, purposefully contaminated Chipotle's meat supply with E. coli bacteria in an attempt to put them out of business. The rumor can be traced back to a website called Real Pharmacy, pharmacy spelled like farm, like where you grow crops, where writer Mike Adams asserted that Chipotle's E. coli outbreaks are not random chance. They are the result of the biotech industry unleashing bioterrorism attacks against the only fast food company that has publicly denounced GMOs. Adams, the self-dubbed health ranger, is the editor of Natural News, which runs articles on things like the benefits of coconut oil, sprinkled with chemtrail-level conspiracy theories. What is the health ranger's evidence? Oh, he's got evidence. How do we know? The CDC has already admitted that some of these E. coli outbreaks involve a rare genetic strain of E. coli not normally seen in food. Furthermore, we also know the track record that the biotech industry engages in the most criminal, dirty, sleazebag tactics imaginable against any person or company that speaks out against GMOs. Okay, maybe evidence was being a bit generous. Adams backs his claims by saying that the biotech mafia also went after anti-GMO daytime TV host Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz, who said amalgam dental fillings release mercury, apple juice contains dangerous levels of arsenic, and who had to testify on Capitol Hill about his endorsements of diet products. That Dr. Oz. Adams claimed that Dr. Oz came under attack for his non-GMO stance and had his own team investigate the source of the attacks and found they were all biotech industry shills, some with felony criminal records and long histories of dubious propaganda targeting anti-GMO activists. One tiny problem with that quote, evidence, unquote, uh, Dr. Oz actually came out in favor of GMOs, so if anything, he's one of the shills. Adam's article spread across the internet at the speed of inflammatory BS. A writer for Thrillist.com reached out to Chipotle for comment and was politely, but curtly told, We have seen some of those conspiracy theories, but we haven't seen any evidence to support them. That writer, Will Fulton, also consulted food historian Rachel Lawden, who said, Most of the people doing GMO, which of course goes far beyond Monsanto, are actively trying to improve their public image. 
something like this would be completely against their self-interest. There are plenty of stories about fraud in the history of the food industry, but I can't think of anything where you have a major food corporation undercover sabotaging another one. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I follow food history fairly closely, and I can't think of anything. And she pointed out one thing that's good to bear in mind when you're reading things on the internet. Before anyone takes it seriously, the burden of proof is on him, or anyone, to come up with some actual evidence. Before that, it can't be believed. Something to think about before you hit share. And a side note, GMO is such a broad term as to be almost useless. Sure, it means things like goats with spider genes spliced into them so they produce spider silk in their milk, which is a real thing, link in the show notes. But it also means that chickens lay eggs almost every day, as opposed to bi-weekly or monthly, like their red jungle fowl ancestors, thanks to selective breeding that started long before Gregor Mendel and his pea plants. This episode is running way long, so let's quickly run down some old wives' tales about food. Go ahead and drink milk if you want to when you have a cold. It won't cause your body to generate more phlegm. A 2018 review of the scientific literature concluded that there was no meaningful connection between milk and upper respiratory mucus. Don't blame your teenager's pizza and potato chip diet for their acne. That's more down to hormones and genetic predisposition. An American Academy of Dermatology study found no link between acne and junk food like soda, chocolate, and chips. And don't blame spicy food for your ulcer. You may remember from the episode Physician Test Thyself from January 2019, before I started putting episode numbers in the titles, that ulcers are caused by Heliocobacter pylori bacteria, not stress, alcohol, spicy food, or smoking. And you can't blame your ulcer on your teenager either. Swallow that gum if you're so inclined. It won't stay in your body for seven years or stick to your skeleton or any other nonsense we've been told. The gum will exit your body on the usual schedule. You might not want to make a daily habit of it, though, or it could lead to constipation. Still better than sticking it under the desk. Also, swimming after eating doesn't cause fatal muscle cramps. Mikey from the Life Cereal commercial didn't die from eating Pop Rocks and drinking soda. Neither will it kill you to eat Mentos and drink Coke. You don't get a free Tootsie Pop because you found a wrapper with a picture of a Native American on a star on it. Gerber never offered free savings bonds, and Humphrey Bogart wasn't the model for the first Gerber baby. Twinkies don't last forever. They're good for about six weeks. And teenage girls aren't inserting vodka-soaked tampons to get a buzz. Trying to insert a wet tampon would be like trying to put an oyster in a coin slot. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. With Taco Bell coming out swinging to prove that their seasoned beef is in fact 88% beef, the Alabama law firm knuckled under and withdrew their case, saying that all they wanted was for the product to be labeled properly, which sounds like the classic, it's not the money, it's the principle. Taco Bell has also had to deal with rumors that their beef is grade D but edible, pet food only, or grade D, unfit for human consumption, suitable for prisoners and students. Taco Bell doesn't have to do much to defend themselves against this particular urban legend. Meat isn't graded on a scale using letters. The actual system is prime, choice, select, standard, commercial, utility, cutter, and canner. I didn't know about the bottom four categories, and I'm going to do my best to keep it that way. 
Remember, you can always find the script for the episode and all of the source material at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.